Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this week's episode, we will be speaking to Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive of MIND, on her plans for the charity, her views on the need for reform in the third sector, and her thoughts on mental health. But first, Russ, you have been doing some reporting this week on some social sector issues. Am I right? I have, looking particularly at social care, which is something that, you know, hundreds of charities across the country dealing with people in residential care or organising home visits for people who have disabilities or who have special needs. And there have been issues that this sector has been shouting about from the top of their lungs for such a long time. Very difficult to recruit staff at the moment. Wages are extremely low. Wages are kept artificially low because contracts with governments are not paying the mm. fees that these charities need. Listen, charities will always say they'd like a bit more money, they want a bit more support. But in social care, you can just see every light on the dashboard is flashing bright red. And yesterday I wrote a piece about Leonard Cheshire, who a lot of our listeners will have heard of, £150 million a year, massive charity delivering hundreds of millions of pounds worth of government contracts as well. And their accounts were properly shocking. And I don't say that very often. They're still raising a lot of money to do the work they're doing. But in those accounts, they laid out what they called a severe but plausible scenario for what might happen if their finances don't improve. Mm. And I've never quite seen a charity do so quite so candidly. Mm. But what they essentially said was that they are in a position where, as I say, severe but plausible. It's not the thing that's most likely to happen, but they have modelled something they think could happen where they end up exceeding their current credit facility, the amount of money they can borrow, possibly as early as October this year. Oh, wow. And then would go into 2024 and eventually 2025, and there would be a very serious threat to whether or not they could carry on as a charity. Hmm. And again, lots of reasons why this might be happening. Of course, the charity is taking lots of steps like trying to cut costs, trying to negotiate up those fees it gets from government, which it has been partly successful in doing, which is extremely good news. But that isn't actually a key part of it. They'll say, look, the government is asking us to do this stuff, to look after some of the most vulnerable in society, to run residential homes to a really high standard, which is what you would always expect, but not paying the fees that is then going to allow the charity to survive financially to deliver those contracts. One to keep an eye on, but just, yeah, really eye-opening to write about that yesterday and, and deeply, deeply alarming. And did I read about their international operations are going to be cut? Yeah, so they say in the accounts that they are going to take out a lot of what they call the non-core work. Mm. So cutting out some of the jobs that aren't on the front line of providing services. And as you say, Leonard Cheshire works overseas, yeah. but... They're also talking about ending anything that's happening internationally. Again, they're trying to get rid of anything that was a financial drag because mm. they need the charity to survive. And as I understand it, Lucinda, you have seen this close up overseas. Yeah, I have. So in my past journalistic life, when <laughs> I was working in mainly West Africa, but I did an assignment in eastern Zambia. And I actually visited a Cheshire home in Chipata in eastern Zambia, which is a home for very young, severely disabled children. And I visited several schools as well as part of this mm. assignment, mainly public schools, and it was amazing the difference in the facilities, in the 
evident care going into the upkeep of this home and meeting these tiny little children with conditions such as club foot and a little girl who'd had her leg amputated after it was deformed at birth. And most of them were rural farming families, children who had been sent to Chapata, which was a dusty town in the middle of fields, essentially, and just receiving this incredible care and access to an education as well so living at the home and then getting you know early early learning so absolutely heartbreaking to hear that it looks like that is going to be all coming to an end well potentially and that kind of ripple effect if you like if mm. charities start to struggle financially here in the UK then you know Leonard Cheshire may not be the first charity you associate with international work but it is there as you've seen it's having this impact and that is going to be potentially passed on to other organisations or other people to try and pick up the slack if the charity withdraws internationally, which it's going to have to. So, as I say, watch this space. Is it just a case of the increasingly difficult environment with costs going up and all the rest of it? Or is there anything else behind what on earth is going on? Inflation seems to have played a huge part. Again, if the contract fees aren't keeping up with inflation, then in real terms, the charity is getting less money but is required to do more work. Well, that's only ever going to end up in one place, which is running deficits, which the charity has for four years in a row. Mm. A more critical view might say, well, the charity only started its big cost-cutting exercises in November 2021, but we're into the, as I say, fourth successive year of the charity making operational losses. So have they reacted quickly enough? That's something I suspect that their own financial teams and auditors and senior leaders will be looking at quite closely. So there's always space where you could say maybe the charity should have acted quicker or differently. They've changed the makeup of their trustee board, which is going to be smaller and they say more nimble. They've got a new chair of trustees who's coming in. So they are trying to shake things up now to try and kind of start to deal with some of this. But it's already quite a long way down the road and financially the situation is really stark. Well, we've really set the tone, haven't we? That was cheerful stuff. (laughs) Let's hope that our guest coming on in a minute can uh, help lighten things up yeah. a bit. No pressure, but we look forward to speaking to Sarah Hughes. Joining us today is Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive of Mind. She's been in post since January. Before that, she was Chief Executive of the Centre for Mental Health and has more than 30 years of experience in mental health and social justice. This started out as a mental health worker with Mind in Haringey. Hello, Sarah. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And you? I'm cool, actually. Yes, I'm very pleased to be speaking to you. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) So full circle from mind to mind. Absolutely. And what a delight and joy it is for me. I have to say that uh, I think I've told this story probably 150 times already, but I've wanted this job since I was 18 years old. So when I was working for Haringey Mind, I remember having a conversation with my manager at the time. We were standing on the rickety stairs next to the building and um, she was describing the Mind Federation to me and how it kind of worked. And so I realised that there was a central organisation, a kind of mothership part of the Federation. And um, I said at the time, we didn't have chief execs of charities then, we had directors. So I said to her, I want to be director of mind and she said and you absolutely will be and uh, 30 years later here I am and those 30 years in you've obviously had plenty of time to think about it what's the big vision for the charity what do you hope that you'll be achieving in the years ahead 
So I think that the big vision for me is really working on developing the kind of the way in which we think about mental health from birth to death thinking about you know all of the conditions that enable us to maintain good mental health I want the organization to be leading that but leading it with partners to be really hooking into all of the parts of the nation's mental health that we haven't quite got to yet and I'm thinking about primarily people from uh, excluded groups and so I think the organization has a role to play in the kind of next decade of deconstructing mental health in a way that promotes change, creates good communities and, you know, does all of the the good stuff, really use our power for good effectively. And would you mind talking us through a couple of things maybe that we're missing at the moment in the mental health debate? Are there things that practitioners and policymakers haven't seen yet and needs a bit more focus? You know, look, I think this is such an interesting time for mental health. And I think it's fair to say that there is a feeling that mental health has kind of dropped down the pecking order in terms of government priority. It's still very kind of well understood in the public sphere. You know, we talk about it, we've got a literacy around it, we've got the language, we've got the the kind of thoughts and feelings and good spirit and heart around mental health. But the government, I think, have kind of moved on. And I think the pandemic forced us into a sort of situation where there's lots of competing priorities. And so mental health is in a kind of weird juncture. We need to help the government really now understand that mental health awareness is not enough. We really need to help the government and society really understand that in order to create good mental health, we need quite significant social change. And I think that for a decade, we've talked about mental health in well-being terms. It's good to talk. Exercise is good for your mental health. You know, talking therapies, all of that stuff has been really important and has laid the ground for where we are now, which is, I think the public are ready for a more nuanced conversation. You know, what actually keeps people well? You know, what creates good mental health? What do the government really need to do? And I'm afraid these are the areas that are much more challenging to think about because they're about things like benefits, they're about things like housing, discrimination, racism, how we invest in our education, in our children. And so we're ready to go into the areas that are challenging ideologically, but also that demand a significant shift in the way that we think about our social structures. Mm, That's a big picture of you know a long to-do list that that you've put out for yourself. That's why I'm so grey yes that's why I'm so grey indeed. Well you look glowing so (laughs) clearly too soon into the job. (laughs) Lucinda you didn't tell me I look glowing this morning I feel left out. Well Russ you you no you look you look great for us. (laughs) (laughs) That is the nicest thing you've ever said to me. The love the love on a Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway So you've just outlined a huge plethora of social issues linked to the mental health of this nation. What about looking internally as well within mind? I understand that your predecessor, Paul Farmer, declared or mentioned at the time of his departure that he wished in the anti-racism area that things had started within the charity a bit sooner than they did. What's your view on that? And also, what's your vision for furthering the anti-racism 
work? I mean, look, I think Paul was really candid about the challenges that Mind have had in terms of kind of anti-racism, thinking about their role in this kind of landscape around social justice and race and equity. There's no denying that racism is toxic to people's mental health. So there is a direct correlation between racism and mental illness. And I think that some organisations have very kind of interesting and complex reasons not really got to the nub of it and mind like many others is in that position so we have had to kind of catch up really really think about what do we mean by anti-racism and we've made mistakes and we're learning from those and so we're not in any way retreating from our commitment to anti-racism but what we want to do is really embark on a kind of very meaningful authentic journey that helps us in every way at every level deliver on that promise And I think it's all very easy for organisations to say, this is our anti-racism ambition, but actually the steps that you need to take to get there are complex. They demand investment and deep commitment and attention. So we've got a whole kind of rolling programme of things that we're doing and a kind of strategic approach, and it's embedded in our strategy. So we're wedded to this promise But like all organisations, I think, in the sector, it does demand facing some hard truths about how you operate, about who you don't deliver services to, you know, the people who are not around your table. And so I think that we're in that place of scrutiny, self-analysis and going, okay, there's there's work to be done. Can you give any specific examples of hard truths that you've come across and are seeking to address in the immediate term? Yeah, so I so I think that, you know, we for a long time had an entirely white leadership team. That has shifted in the last few months because of, you know, my appointment and my director of equity and change, her appointment to Marcia Bluck from the Trussell Trust. We stole a wonderful person from them and I'm really apologetic about it. But, uh, you know, I'm very pleased that we've got her. But the truth is, is that, you know, when you have an all white leadership team, you know, you fundamentally have blind spots. Of course you would. I think that we've, again, similarly to other organisations and, you know, I speak to my peers all the time. I think we've made assumptions about how much we know and how good we are at delivering on a, you know, racial justice plan or a kind of promise to racial equity. And so I think that those are the hard truths, really. You know, we're not as good as perhaps we thought we were and we need to address and reposition ourselves in terms of that kind of more human, humble approach to it. That question of repositioning is so interesting as well in relation to government, which is something I write about quite a lot, how charities do and don't sort of campaign, advocate with government, sign contracts, get money from government, all those things. Yeah. Um, I know you've spoken in the past about just being a bit nervous that charities that can limit their advocacy options. Do you mind speaking a little bit about that and, and how serious that issue is in the sector? Yeah, look, I think it's a very serious issue in the sector at the moment. I think I don't like the language of culture war because I think it is very political. But I think that we are in a situation where um, the role of charities has become kind of murky in a way. There's a huge amount of cynicism, mistrust, and all of that is coming from a, a narrative which is I'm not entirely sure people really understand the role of charities today what we deliver how we need to operate the expectations around professionalism versus being very close to your beneficiaries I for a long long time believed 
and still believe that you need to be able to negotiate with government. You need to be able to kind of have frank conversations, sit around the table. There are times when I think you have to leave the table. Okay, so when we talk about being in or inside, you know, in or out of the tent, I have this kind of other perspective, which is I think you can be in the tent, but you don't have to be a tent pole. Right. So, you know, that is a bit of a distinction that I kind of keep holding on to, which is I think you can still challenge from within, but you have to always have your eye on the door. And you have to have your eye on the door because, frankly, there are times when you have to be able to say no. You have to be able to say, we absolutely don't agree with you. I mean, indeed, we've had an example today. Funding for social care reform has been halved. And that's an appalling decision. There is no two ways about it. I am furious about it. And I think that I will say this to my government contacts and the civil servants I work with and the ministers that I talk to. I will be able to have this conversation with them. But I also need to be able to say to my colleagues and to the communities that we work with, this is the work that we are now going to do to push forward that challenge. And some of that will be uncomfortable because we may use data that raises serious questions. We may take up, you know, a campaigning role. So I don't, you know, what I don't want to see is I don't want charities to be arm in arm with any government because I just don't think that is our role. I don't think it ever has been our role. But I, I think we should be able to have conversations with them. But I don't want to, I don't want to hold up government policy. And um, what about managing the public perception of charities? Mm, I mean, you know, this is so. I mean, it's such an interesting shift. When I first started working in charities, I was a teenager. There was a real sense of. Communities saw charities as the backup function. We would be able to come round when things were not working. We would be able to deliver services that statutory providers couldn't deliver on. We could extend our services in ways that our partners couldn't. And and there was a kind of high regard. I think what we've seen over the last 30 years is a huge shift, both, I think, primarily driven by the way charities are funded. And so this kind of challenge between getting funding from society and communities versus statutory funding has really forced us to operate in different ways. You have organisations like Mind, like Shelter, like Bernardo's, huge, huge organisations, huge income. They demand a kind of professional outfit to, to manage that. But then the public, I think, have this struggle between we want our charities to be soft and gentle, but we also want them to be professional and look after our money properly. We want them to campaign and advocate, but we also want them to kind of stay in their lane. And so we have all of these tensions and we're really struggling, I think, to articulate and answer those questions. And I think that this is not just about the public's response. This is about how we engage in these topics, these discussions. And I think that the time has gone, I think, for charities just to be able to say we exist because we are good and we are on the, we are on the right side of good. That's no longer an argument that we can stand by. Uh, there has to be added value. There has to be clarity about if you're a big charity that is delivering services, are you a charity in quite the same way as a campaigning charity? If you are running services that need to be regulated by the CQC, for instance, are you the same as a charity that is working in a grassroots community, you know, delivering community groups? 
No, you're not. But you are considered in the minds of the public and government in the same way. And I think that we really have to be more nuanced. We have to be brave and confront the challenges that charity, the notion of charity brings about. So I, and this is quite a difficult thing for a charity leader to talk about, but that the notion of charity in a benevolent sense, I think has passed I think the benevolence of charity is a long gone idea. And we're talking now about working with people on a much more equal footing, really thinking about distributed power, really thinking about that advocacy and influencing function. And all of that brings about, I think, a demand for us to... I think, go under the carpet a bit, under the rug, and start sweeping out some of the old myths and traditions that we live by. Time has changed. I think the younger people that I speak to now certainly demand a different approach from from the charity sector. I don't have the answer, though. I wish I did, but I don't. Uh, All I know is that there's something needs to shift, a reform needs to happen. I'm part of the charity reform group, which I'm proud of. I work with Akivo, I work with MCVO to really think about, you know, what are the answers to these questions? They're complicated. Do you have any examples immediately to mind of issues that need to be swept out from under the carpet? I think it's this issue between if we're an organisation that is delivering services on behalf of the state versus organisations that are not doing that. You know, those distinctions really need to be understood. They really need to be understood in terms of the impact they have on the relationships those organisations therefore have with their beneficiaries. The changes that regulation demands, a huge shift in the bureaucracy, in the nature of the way organisations have to, you know, the culture, the way they, they're working modus operandi, all of that kind of stuff we we haven't really interrogated in terms of if you identify as a charity, you're registered as a charity, what's that actually mean today? And I'm, I'm not too sure that we have that level of understanding anymore. It's become hugely complicated and no charity is the same, which is fine and that's always been the case. But now we've got such a vast spectrum I'm not too sure that they can even be categorised in the same place. One of the things that came out of the civil society review, you might remember from a couple of years ago, was whether it's going to become easier for charities to sort of register very quickly so that they can get running and registered as soon as possible. And certainly I think the mood music around that was, it's already quite a complicated sector. And one of the things that at least controls it a little bit is that the regulator can take their time a little bit to make sure they know exactly who's coming in Mm. and to a lesser extent who's going out. So that has been part of the sort of public policy discourse as well. Mind, massive old charity, one of the 100 biggest by income in the country, but of course, as you say, works with partners which carry so much kind of local expertise, if much lower income. How do you guys make sure that you sort of keep that relationship as free of some of those difficult power dynamics? Oh, wow. That's a great question. (laughs) Well, I I mean, the example I always think of is the anger that you sometimes get directed at. I won't name them, but, you know, sort of large children's charities that are seen to have gone into areas and done work that smaller charities 
feel, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, they were better set up to do because they had all of that expertise about the community that they feel was being sort of swept away. From what you're saying, it sounds like you're very aware of those risks. And I wondered what, what MIND can do to mitigate against that. So this is a great question because this it's one of the questions that we ask ourselves all the time. So we have, we're a federation, so we have 110 organisations that are affiliated to us. And that relationship over the last 20 years has evolved hugely. And what we're trying to achieve is something that is equitable, that recognises the different parts that we have to play in this kind of whole landscape of mental health. And some of that means that at Central Mind, we run, for instance, the affiliation agreement. So people have to you know, adhere to a list of things to retain their affiliation with us. So that immediately puts a kind of power dynamic into the relationship. What we have to do is is undertake that in a way that is transparent, open, collegiate, that it's co-produced. So that's what we try to do. I think we try to share income. We try to share brand power and influence and the space in the ether of you know communication with the public but it is absolutely an imperfect approach and one of the things that we're going to focus on over the next year is how do we become a somebody called it federation first approach which I didn't quite like because it sounded a little bit um like you know, British National Party or something like that. But but uh, <laughs> um, uh, but nonetheless, the principle remains the same, which is we want to be an organisation that recognises the power of our network first. We want to recognise that they're doing the work in communities. We want to recognise that some of the challenges that I just spoke about in terms of funding contracts from statutory, you know, the majority of our local mind organisations are funded through contracts to deliver provision in local communities by local authorities, by ICBs and and so on. And so as a result, already there's again a difference between us in terms of the way we're funded and what we're asked to deliver. So it's recognising all of that. It's recognising that we've got a huge amount of leadership across the network. So I was a local mind chief exec. So I think that brings an advantage into central minds to kind of hold in, in our minds about what's being delivered out there, what's what's going on, what's the mood music like. It is not hugely fun to be chief exec of a small charity without support. And so we've got quite a few small minds in our network. We need to provide that support. We need to be providing that kind of leadership opportunity. We need to be in solidarity with them. We need to be able to provide them with the innovation, the policy research that helps them have those local conversations. So we've got a lot to do, but there's a lot has already happened to kind of develop that relationship. But it's not a one and done type deal. You know, this is a relationship that we have to continually work at. And certainly, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we're all in very, very different positions now. And therefore, we need to reconvene, think again, what does the Federation look like over the next 10 years? And, I, and I'm quite sure it looks different to how it's been. Mm. And looking at relationships between large and small charities that aren't necessarily part of a federation like MIND is, where, as you mentioned, working in services to children, um, Mm. a large charity maybe identifies that a smaller local organisation might be better placed, better qualified to be delivering that service. Are there many risks that come 
with sharing resources and work risks yeah, that loads. have to be taken on by the large charity what are they and how how do you manage them I think there's sort of very tangible risks like finance so the reality is is that when you're sharing with smaller organizations or any other organization the income that you are able to generate for your central focus you know your central function diminishes you know so there is a real financial risk to working in partnership there can be reputational risks because if, if you're not really on it, you're not working well together, all sorts of things can happen. We can let our partners down. This isn't just smaller providers letting us down. You know, we can let providers down and our partners down. There can be all sorts of personalities in the charity sector. Again, how do we really negotiate? How are we really being collegiate? How are we really being an anchor or and accelerating and amplifying the impact that grassroots or smaller organisations can have. I think from my perspective, we always have to test the benefit of having partnership. Is it going to provide the impact that we need to see and therefore worth the huge effort that goes in? So you always see these funding applications that say to you, and it would be great if you worked in partnership. Well, yes, that would be great if we could work in partnership, but that will mean that it will cost X more funds and it will take X longer period of time. But that's never really embedded. So, again, we've got systemic challenges around that partnership work that I'd like to see funders tackle, not making assumptions, you know, go off charities and work together. I mean, that that is like a red rag to the bull. For me, because I just think that is incredibly arrogant in terms of understanding how demanding partnership, if you're going to do it well, how demanding it can be, because it's a every day making sure that the partnership's working. And I, and I think that we underestimate often what's required to do it well. And MIND are the experts in mental health, about a million people employed in charities in this country, 25 million semi-regular volunteers. That's a lot of people who might have their own mental health needs who are sort of knocking around the system that we work for and write about every day. Do you think that gets enough focus? And do you have any sort of sense of how you manage that inside mind when you've got your staff to look after? Yeah, you, I mean, again, you're so right. So what we know about the charity sector is that much of the workforce are people with lived experience of the cause that they're fighting for mm. and therefore as a result the emotional relationship with the work is absolutely heightened and when the emotional relationship with your work is heightened you know you're more likely to experience mental distress if something isn't working or if the issues are quite close to your own experience there's all sorts of kind of nuances and parts to that dynamic we as an organization have a huge number of people with lived experience of mental health challenges so we absolutely know that it demands thought it demands effectively if you're an organization that employs people with lived experience and, and prizes that you have to be able to create the conditions that really makes the best use of that intelligence and so that does demand creative and thoughtful flexible ways of working that does demand you know having emotional intelligence at every level it does demand a bravery around negotiating tasks and outcomes and impact it 
does demand you as an organisation to accept that sometimes you'll have to move more slowly. Now, all of those things are really complex. And sometimes we are not quite prepared for it. And and there are other organisations that I know have really struggled to really think about, well, what is the point if we're not actually making best use of it? So I think it's a great challenge to us to really analyse it today. I think the mental health of those people who are working in charities across the system, like our health and social care colleagues, I think there's a quite a bit of burnout. Mm. So I do think that mental health challenges have increased across the sector, like it has within all of the other kind of human organisations. I don't think it's being talked about enough, but this is part of my, I think when I initially spoke about the government's attention to mental health has deteriorated. I think that the attention on workplace mental health has also deteriorated. And post-pandemic, we absolutely know that we have to reinvigorate people's commitments because we're seeing it at every level in every organisation. You speak to finance colleagues, you know, colleagues in the commercial sector, they really are struggling to understand how to go forward with hybrid working and burnout and mental health challenges and all sorts of things. It's a time when we really need to create the space for these conversations and this dialogue because I think that if we don't attend to this it's either a turning point or a tipping point yeah absolutely and what tips would you have for charity leaders listening to this who are seeking to be more supportive of the mental health of their staff and volunteers The first point is to really understand the mental health challenges that your organisation is experiencing. So I think you don't need to kind of walk into the dark with this. You need to talk to your staff. You know, what are they telling you about the pressure points? What are they telling you about how they're feeling and uh, the things that help and don't help? And then respond, I guess. You know, I mean, it sounds very easy, but that's because I think it is. You know, if you listen to staff, they often give you the solutions. And the idea often is that we start talking about mental health, everybody will be mentally ill, everybody will want to stay off work. And, you know, that just isn't borne out in reality. That's not what happens. When you talk about mental health in organisations, it creates the environment of opportunity, of compassion, empathy. And those are the things that retain people in the workplace. So that's number one. There are a huge number of resources online. We run mental health at work and the plethora of stuff on there is huge. We've got the blue light uh, stuff for our emergency responders. We've got stuff on there that enables you to kind of be screened from the first conversation to the last conversation and those resources are really useful because we've done the thinking for you we just ask you to embark on that journey use the resources remember that our workforce isn't the enemy and that we need to kind of help them stay positive and well at work and that's the job you know that is actually the chief exec's job Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive of Mind, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Love talking to you. Uh, it was great to speak with Sarah Hughes. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as we did actually conducting the interview. She was great company. But before we go, Lucinda, 
I understand that you are allowed out and about today. Where are you off to? Yes. So I am downing my mic and my headphones here in the studio and whizzing off to central London to Third Sector's C-Suite Summit. So we've been plugging it uh, <laughs> for the past few weeks on the podcast. So it does seem only right that we go and find out if it was worth the hype. The summit seeks to answer the question, what will the future of the third sector look like? So I will be off now and we'll speak to you from there. So I have successfully made it to the C-Suite Summit and I have bumped into Andy. Hello, Lucinda. How's it going? Not bad at all. So you've exchanged your acting editor's hat for MC Compare. Yeah, we've got a great crowd of people from charities of all different sizes who have been hearing talks from Jane Eyde from Akivo. She's the chief executive. She was talking about the future of the voluntary sector. There's some really challenging stuff there. And we've also had a panel about fundraising, which featured Paul Amadi from the British Red Cross and uh, Daniel Flusky from Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, I'm Paul Amadi, and I'm the chief supporter officer at the British Red Cross. So I was a part of a panel conversation which was exploring the future of fundraising. There was quite a punchy exchange uh, which was around the relationship uh, between uh, smaller organisations um, and larger national organisations and whether national organisations are taking up too much market space basically. Um, so it was really good to have that, you know, that conversation because what it enabled us to um, recognise though is that unlike lots of other sectors that our tendency within the uh, not-for-profit sector is to work collaboratively, uh, to exchange ideas, uh, to exchange uh, creativity uh, with each other as well. So, But it was helpful to surface that. Um, it was a really dynamic, really dynamic conversation and a dynamic session. Sarah West, Director of Campaigns and Communications at Hospice UK. I think this whole issue of diversity and equality and inclusion is extremely important. We all know it's important, but we're still struggling to make a significant change. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come today and hear what speakers had to say about how do we actually do this in reality. I think there are some great people here that I want to follow up with, particularly around how do we as senior leaders help influence and shape our trustees, the board and the direction that we want this sector to be moving in. It's no longer, in my view, it's no longer enough just to be a great leader for your own charity. Actually, we've got some serious challenges societally and I think that we as a sector, if we're pulled together, we can make some significant differences. Also, the delegates have been in roundtables talking about various subjects, including will robots take over the future of fundraising and all other sorts of stuff. Will they? But <laughs> I think the answer is no, um, but um, I think they can help. Well, that actually brings me in quite nicely to say that that's it for this week. Next week, Russ and I will be joined by two guests to talk about the role or potential role of AI in the voluntary sector. Thank you to our guest, Sarah Hughes, and our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next week. <laughs>